Hey everyone, it's me, TV. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. This episode is brought to you by Donner. Check out the show notes to find a good deal at Donner. Like the sound of this? This is the Donner Island Delay. And the really cool Donner LP that I've shown off on, like, Instagram check it out. Uh, they've got some really good summer deals, and check out their snap deals as well. Use the link in the show notes to help support the show. Get yourself some cool musical instruments, maybe some patch chords. Cool. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Greetings, listeners. It is I, TV Spitzer and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos. It's books, it's monsters, it's unfortunate human casualties, it's timeline in general, and even its tangential bits. Like the dreamlands, or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Hello everyone, welcome once again to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am one of your hosts, D.B. Spitzer, and to my virtual right, as always... David Heath, Farmer Dave, how the heck is it going? How are things on the farm, and are you doing well? So, the farm is doing well. I am doing well. Although, I have forgotten that we live in northern Oregon. Yeah. And and this stuff started falling out of the sky. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And who'd guess? It's water. Yeah, yeah. It started raining again, which was really, really, really nice. The cemetery had turned a nice, uh, spiky, uh, kind of beige-ish brown as the grass had died. And the mayor's been saying, we need to reserve water for uh, certain city projects. What the city... I, You know, I'm, I'm not... I'm not part of the city council anymore. I'm not part of the mayor's office. So, you know, I don't know what's going on, but uh, it's okay to let the cemetery dry out because we're saving water. And uh, I don't know. Doesn't doesn't sound like the greatest to me, but I, you know. Uh, you, you don't have that problem up on the farm. You, you You're not part of really the town in that way, like, no, no, we're we're our own well system, so we're on our own aquifer. Yeah. But you know, we had the the fires up to a couple of weeks ago. Nothing yeah. really close. Yeah. Nothing, nothing close, close but, thankfully. But, but you know, this whole area, Portland, had the fourth worst air quality in all of the world. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's bringing back horrors. When, you know, when I was a kid, eighties, mm-hmm. nineties. I don't know if you remember, but. The fear of acid rain. Oh, yeah. You know, and it turned out, you know, fortunately, we kind of reduced the amount of, you know, stuff that we were throwing in the atmosphere yeah, a little yeah. bit. But, yeah, as a child, you know, I was always yeah, like, as a child, better put on my, you know, an extra uh, raincoat because if not, the acid rain might burn my skin. And 
Yeah, so as a child, you know, I always had to put on a, a second raincoat because I was so afraid that, you know, yeah. the acid rain would get to me and it would burn my skin, which, of course, it never did. But yeah. it, it, it brought back traumatic childhood flashbacks. You know, tomorrow maybe we'll have YK, Y2K flashbacks. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't remember ever being worried about Y2K acid rain. I was primarily worried about domestic terrorists and chemical warfare and, um, like, Cold War stuff. <laughs> oh, speaking of Cold War, yeah. childhood 80s stuff, we've got an interview today. Oh, cool. Very with cool. Mark Miller, and his story, he is the author of The Librarian at the End of the World. Oh, okay. And in December, he's got a new novel coming out, and it's called The Two-Headed Woman. At the end of the world. Okay. Cool. And it, it sort of it it takes place in Texarkana, Texas slash Arkansas, uh, and which is is a real city. It's actually half on one side of the state, half on the other. Okay. All right. And what um, it's basically a the eighties nuclear war happened. Then uh-huh. there's mutations uh-huh. and weird experiments. Gotcha. And, and it's absurdism. Uh-huh. But it's coming back in vogue, you know. We're, yeah. we're worried about the Russians again. Sure, we're sure. worried about the environment. Yeah. So uh, we'll be covering a little bit of about that uh, in our part two interview section with Mark Miller. Very nice, very nice. I'm excited to hear that. All right. So uh, this week we're going back to Dave's corner of the podcast, and uh, Dave's going to talk to us all. This is this is more like Dave's corner of the podcast. This part right here, the interview part's the interview part. But I always put the Dave's corner of the podcast song there because Dave does all the hard work. But uh, this is this this reminds me what we're talking about now of the stuff found on Dave's corner. talking about today is one that Dave's going to talk about for a while there, the faces, faceless god. And then we've got the floating horror that we're going to chat about. All right, Dave, take it away on the faceless god. Yeah, so, so the heavy work um, this week was, oh no, I had to read Robert Block's short story. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, it was so difficult and hard. <laughs> I love Robert Block. Sure, yeah. And I think the the I think the best non Lovecraftian mythos story will be his uh, notebook found in an abandoned farm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this one this one is very interesting, and I kind of, so we talked a little bit a couple weeks ago where um, where Derleth in 1944 talked about, you know, seeing the god, 
the the effigies of the gods not having a face. Yeah, yeah. May have given him a little more credit than I should have. Yeah. Because Robert Block wrote The Faceless God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it was published in 1936. Okay. So it was published eight years. So Dareleth was basically continuing and riffing on what Block wrote. Well, it's what Dareleth does best. Yeah, <laughs> oh, you know, he, in he does. regards to the Cthulhu mythos, in regards to the Cthulhu mythos, his other writings that aren't mythos related apparently are really good. But Sack Prairian. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. Like I said, we don't. I don't know exactly when this was written, but it was published in May 1936. Makes me think that it was written in 1935. Or not early 1936. Okay. That would have made Locke either 18 or 19 years old. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and this is also the, this is Locke's heyday of his communications with Lovecraft, the writing. Um, And soon after this, Lovecraft is just going to get that devastating review of Mountain of Madness. Uh Uh-huh. And he's going to start getting sick. Okay. And even if you want to admit it, he realizes that there's something going on physically. <clears throat> so he's going to withdraw from writing shortly after this, depending on when it was written. All right. Uh, and, and I don't think Block held on to things like Lovecraft did. Lovecraft, you know, even Robert E. Howard, you know, would publish things four years, you know, posthumously after yeah. he died. Block's too young. I mean, I know he started writing like when he was ten or twelve, mm-hmm. but I, I I can't imagine that he wrote this any earlier than seventeen. Yeah. Um. So there is the faceless God, which is the story, and then faceless God is the being. Now, the main character is not a. The main character is. It's a villain, not even an uh, anti-hero. It uh, doesn't have a first name, but it's, it's spelled S-T-U-G-A-T-C-H-E. Okay. Um, so I've heard different versions. As near as I can tell, I just went into, you know, I don't think it's a real name. Okay, all right. I think Block made it up. Uh, and so I pronounced it in my head, Stagachi. Okay. Um, I've heard other people just pronounce it Stagach. Yeah. Uh, he's a European who works on uh, an... Ex- oh, and yeah, this was written in 1936, but spoilers. Um, so, but he's a European who works in a uh, in Egypt because he's basically run out of uh, Europe. Uh-huh. He's basically, if he took all the charming stuff out of uh, Bolash from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark... Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's who this guy, and gave him maybe another extra hundred pounds. Gotcha, gotcha. So, like I said, as near as I can tell, Stagach or Stagachi is not a real word. But this, it seems to have might have been based on like a, uh, an Italian swear word. Yeah, I was gonna say it sounds like uh, sounds like something that you would hear someone. Um, you know, bite their thumb at someone and call them a dirty stagach or something like that is it, what's it, been kicking yeah, around in my head. Yeah. So there, there's, there's uh, parts of Italy, uh, there's a very closely sounding 
euphemism, euphemism for the male anatomy. Gotcha. But, but you don't ask. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Okay. So it's a, a euphemism for the male anatomy, but okay. you don't actually use it when you are describing the male anatomy. Gotcha. It's always something else uh, as a as an insult. Sure, sure. Okay. And, you know, if Lovecraft had created the word, <clears throat> then I would have said, oh, that's just coincidence. Robert E. Howard, too, I would have thought maybe just this, this you know, cool word. Yeah. But it's possible that Block, even, you know, 1819 when he wrote sure. this, might have actually done this as a pun. Because this guy really is this total jerk you know he yeah he torture it, it starts with him torturing someone to get information mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you know i'm not sure exactly where the word comes from it like i said it doesn't seem to be it seems to be something block wrote okay made up. all right huh so for the story and you know again this is a what 84 year old story yeah uh, or 86 year old story um There'll be spoilers. Okay. But a couple of things that we see here. So, so uh, Doctor Stagatje, Doctor Stagatje is mm-hmm. basically he's a European. Doesn't even say which country he's from. Yeah. But is forced to Egypt to basically becomes a um, you know an artifact smuggler. Oh right. Uh, in fact, if you took all the cool stuff and personality out of uh, Balash from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, Belloc? Gave him, as, as Belloc, what yeah. does I call it? <laughs> gave him an extra 100 pounds. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That, w- that would be Stagachi. Okay. All right. um, and so he starts by, you know, uh, by torturing these Bedo- this Bedouin to find out this location of the faceless god, which is a statue about man-sized of a sphinx with no face. Huh. Uh, and it's obviously going to be very valuable to him. Um, so Block sets up a couple things in this book that are going to kind of come back more often. So one of them is this idea of an avatar. He doesn't use the word avatar, but this idea that there are more than one Narlothotep. Okay. That, that he is there in sort of some main form, kind of like Lovecraft's prose poem. Okay. Uh, but that he has these thousand other spirits or masks or representations so that it is even possible that, for lack of a better word, Narlothotep Prime could talk to the faceless god. Gosh. They could inter- even interact. Okay. Uh, so there's, the faceless god is the name of the short story. Yeah. But the deity is just faceless god. Okay. So just that's, so when they, when you're talking about the faceless god, it's uh-huh. the story, faceless god is the, the god. Okay. And another thing is that he brings up this idea that there was actual opposition by the ancient Egyptian government or religion or secret society Mm -hmm. that 
actively tried to destroy all references of Narlathotep. Oh, wow. And what, and that they did in most things, but that it still snuck away through and, and block name drops, you know, things like Necronomicon, you know, the Book of Eben, you know, Mysteries yeah. of the Worm. Sure. Um, but that it's removed from, or he's removed from the mainstream Egyptian mythology, but all the negative stories, all the negative aspects of the Egyptian gods like Set and Sebek and are leftover stories about Narlahotep. Oh. They carry over even though they're attributed to these fictitious gods. Okay. Um, so basically, uh, Sagachi uh, is trying to get this um, this this artifact, the, this giant sphinx, faceless sphinx statue. Yeah. Uh, and he ends up either killing or running off all of his workers. So he's stuck in the desert. So, but he's smart enough. He can figure. He travels at night. He can make it to an oasis. But he keeps traveling around in circles. Uh, and he just doesn't seem, he, he just can't find his way out no matter how hard he tries. Uh, and then comes this huge storm, and the next thing we know, um, he realizes that, you know, he looks in the face and he sees uh, the, the statue and he sees the cosmos. Uh, and then it ends with the sandstorm coming and Stagachi basically being covered up to his neck in sand. And, and all he can do is just repeat Narhotep's name over and over and over again. Oh, wow. And, and so this is, uh, it's not a perfect story. <laughs> it's not a perfect mythos story. Yeah. But for written by a 19-year-old, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's darn good. I mean, it, it, it's up there. It's not, it's in no way, say, up with some of Block's best, like yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Sure, or sure. even... Uh, you know, I, you know the Yugoslavian, which is a, again spoilers, mm-hmm. it's a it's a Dracula. Oh. The, the the narrator turns out to be Dracula at the okay. end. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm but it, it's a good solid block story. It's a good solid interpretation of one of the masks of Narlathotep, and or Narlathotep. And a lot of what he takes is avatar idea of these uh, governmental or religious attempt to block out the mention of the great old ones and the you know older gods. Uh, this whole sort of and it's kind of a cross and it, not exactly, but he takes you know the action adventure of Howard and the concepts of Lovecraft uh-huh. and cosmic horror. Put it somewhere right in the middle. That's cool. That's super cool. Uh, and so it's a, it's a good, solid story. If you're a moderate reader, you can probably read in, you know, 45, 50 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's a good, strong story, and I think it's a good interpretation of uh, Narlathotep. Okay, cool. Very cool. I like that. Uh, the next uh, aspect, uh, face, what, whatever you want to call is the floating horror from Haiti. This form of Narlethotep manifests itself through a body that's prepared and presented for this 
jellyfish with like uh, red veins going through it and um, the jellyfish is like bluish in color and it's for a fringe voodoo cult and um, it's from the story Star Pools by Atanesso. Um, and, uh, and, and I found very little about that yeah. online other than a very cool picture of it. Yeah, yeah, there's a cool picture of it and a website in German. So we don't know if this is, I'm, I'm guessing if it's in German, it's probably for um, uh, Cthulhu Spiele or, or, or whatever, um, <laughs> whatever Call of Cthulhu's called in German. Um, in the German language. Uh, yeah, so, um, in the German language. Um, it's, it's a cool concept, and if you just wanted to, like, steal the base concept for, like, your little stories and stuff like that, or your little, uh, RPGs, or any, any projects you've got going on, uh, check out the Star Pools if you can find it, because we were not able to. Um, yeah, so, again, uh, anything you have to say about, uh, the floating horror? That, you know, other, and then I guess it has also been used, it's the term, I mean, um, has also been used in a couple of, like, antagonists and monsters in video games. Okay, okay. But, uh, again, I just couldn't find any connection. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, yeah, all right. Well, everyone, that's uh, that part of the show. Uh, right now, I, I've been trying to, like, keep the sound off mic, because who wants to listen to me slurp on my copper cow coffee? I'm drinking the vanilla right now. I'm not generally a fan of having flavors in my coffee, but copper cow does it right. They actually put, like, little bits of vanilla in with the coffee, so when you do your pour-over, it's not like artificial vanilla flavor in your coffee. The lavender has real lavender in it. The rosemary it has rosemary in it. Uh, there's actually salt and bits of caramel in the salted caramel. And, uh, yeah, there's little bits of cinnamon in the churro. I really like it a lot. It's super easy to carry around with you, the dry, dry stuff, and then, you know, if you can find hot water, make, make, make yourself a cup of coffee. So, yeah, it's, uh, Nicer than a K-cup, and uh, not as much hassle as a French press, but it's good, nice pour-over coffee. And if you're like, hey, I have my own little metal thing that I do pour-over coffee with, uh, and I just use coffee from the store, well, good for you. That's, that's really nice and probably way better for the environment. But if you uh, like the coffee from Copper Cow Coffee, you can buy it in whole bean. Mm. So... Check it out, Copper Cow Coffee. Links in the show notes. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that will tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show.
This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. Oh, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I am a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, they have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. Excited. We've got Mark Miller uh, on the show today. And Mark, uh, maybe if you could tell the audience just a little bit about uh, who you are and a little bit about you. All right. Hi, my name. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, my name is Mark Miller, as you said, and I uh, most recently have been writing Slipstream or Absurdist Fiction uh, in 2019, Montag Press published my uh, my first novel, The Librarian at the End of the World, and uh, and they have also accepted my new novel, which is forthcoming later this year, uh, I think early December, and it is called The Two-Headed Lady at the End of the World, and it is a, uh, a romance novel about conjoined twins and the men who love them, and uh, two men who are stationed in an underground military bunker who uh, that's, have been abandoned and they are stuck down there and they have to kind of acknowledge their growing attraction to one another. Uh, and also about a sentient CPU in charge of America's missile defense system who uh, falls in love with a, a fax machine at the Pentagon. As happens. As can be expected, I suppose. Yeah. Now, you've got actually a treat for us. You've got a little bit of a reading for us today, don't you? Yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I'm going to give a uh, – just read a random excerpt from the, uh, from the novel. And uh, I did this by opening a computer and scrolling and stopping. And so – Is not... this the, the original novel or the new one? No, this is the new one. This is the one that is forthcoming uh, uh, in December. Ooh, a sneak preview. A sneak preview. And, right. uh, well, then if maybe you could let us know a little bit about it, and uh, I'd love to hear it. Okay, so uh, the novel is about uh, two twins, Amanda and Miranda Morgan, who were born in a small town uh, called Wamba, Texas. And because of a secret particle accelerator uh, program that's happening beneath their family farm, uh, without their knowledge, uh, there's an accident, and they are... Uh, irrevocably conjoined uh, so they went from being regular twins to conjoined twins and uh this is the story of them and the men who love them and uh so one of the suitors amanda's uh high school boyfriend was named jack and uh after they graduated after a disastrous prom night they went their separate ways uh but they still have unresolved feelings for one another and uh Jack is currently in basic training uh, with a uh, drill sergeant named Orville Mathis, and uh, he uh, 
goes to sleep one night and has this dream. Mm. That night, Jack dreamed of Amanda. A rampaging T-Rex was destroying downtown Texarkana. Drill Sergeant Mathis said, It's moving toward the munitions under the old hotel. The Russians are onto us somehow. This is Peach, their secret weapon. Peach, clarified Jack. Peach, reiterated Mathis. He lit a victory cigar. Such was his confidence. Jack squinted at the beast. What do you need us to do? Ooh, who is your lady friend? Drill Sergeant Mathis eyed Amanda like a bowl of clam chowder. My name is Orville. You don't happen to have a sister, cousin, mother, aunt, niece, or daughter, do you? Jack did a double take. Miranda was no longer conjoined to her. Where's your sister, he asked. I only want you, said Amanda. Now let's go kill the Razorbacks. What? No. They were at a football game. Was it homecoming? The homecoming game that Jack would have invited Amanda to had either liked football or not been an outcast. The Razorbacks had peaches on their helmets. Where's your sister? I cut her off for you. I knew she would always come between us, and I know you always get what you want. The T-Rex is destroying the hotel, shouted Orville Mathis, now in civilian attire. That goddamn maggot-encrusted tilapia burger with the stumpy frog-leg arms. Amanda pointed. It's just right over there, near the concession stand. Did you ever try frog legs? asked Orville. They can be very romantic. No, I only take my Frito chili pies with extra jalapenos. Besides, the hotel is over there. Jack pointed to where downtown should have been. It's been moved. Miranda stared, mouth agape, astonished by the empty blackness, a void at the edge of town. Downtown had been transported beneath the bleachers and shrunk into a snow globe on the concession stand's counter. Orville is right. Jack tried to get his bearings. Where are we? That is drill sergeant to you, you hot dog water wastrel. Then they were all tiny, and the T-Rex was destroying the miniature model of downtown. They looked at the concession stand and saw a snow globe on its counter. A snow globe within a snow globe. Infinite snow globes all the way down. Jack looked around for the T-Rex. Let's not get distracted. The Frito chili pies smelled delicious, but they were serving them with peaches. That way, Amanda pointed. The cars were all on fire. What the goddamn hell? Jack reached for his sawback machete. This shit is vegetarian. Drill Sergeant Mathis puffed his chest, displaying a full array of metals. He threw his Frito chili pie with warm peach compote topping onto the ground and stomped it. They ran out from under the bleachers toward downtown. The night sky held the greenish hue foretelling a tornado. Jack did a, a double take and was relieved to realize it was only the snow globe's dome. One disaster is enough for now, he said. Mathis nodded and stared ahead at the enemy. That's right, Thrasher. Our plate is full. Then he eyed Amanda up and down with delicious clam chowder. Amanda dry heaved. Gross, you pig. Mmm, barbecue. The veteran licked his lips. The T-Rex hurled, the T-Rex hurled enormous tubs of Vaseline with its tiny arms, and they exploded on impact. Jack mounted his motorcycle, Amanda behind him, and they hurled, hurtled toward distance, or hurtled through distance and time at the rampaging beast, the engine whining and screaming into the dark night air. Ahead was the old, old, old hotel, a T-Rex with cybertronic laser beam eyes and apparently a secret munition stash the Russians had somehow found out about. It was 1986, and the fall air was crisp and auspicious. 
this was back when the future seemed possible and that things would change for the better. Jack felt happy and hopeful, having not yet come to understand just how we would waste the world. Amanda said, It smells like the fair, doesn't it? Every fall, just like this, when the fair travels to town. Jack breathed the scent in. God, I love this moment, but holy shit, we need to focus. That thing has laser beam eyes. They were on Birch Street now, headed right at the heart of the maelstrom. The road was slick with Vaseline. Flames climbed the dark sky. People screamed and leaped to their deaths from the top of the hotel. Jack glared hard at the road ahead. We only have one shot at this. I love you. Amanda held on tight. Jack pointed his bike at an impromptu ramp made by a long slab of concrete resting atop a smoldering school bus. When they were air- Then they were airborne, the smell of Frito chili pies engulfing their senses, and in the distance, on the skyline, they saw Ferris wheel's lights. Amanda breathed deeply. Look, the fair. You can smell the funhouse from here. Miranda pointed to a, gar- a garish glow on the horizon. You're right. I see corn dogs. Corn dogs everywhere. Jack wondered how the fair got way over there. Wait, what? Where'd you come from? Glad you're back, sis, said Amanda. I've missed you. Then he was falling. Jack woke in his bunk with a dwindling erection. Somewhere in the distance, someone was cooking a peach, uh, cooking peach cobbler and chili, hopefully not in the same pot. Well, I've got to admit, I really enjoyed all of that. I mean, can't wait well, to come out. Thank you. It's, uh, uh, I mean, that was a dream sequence, so that's a little more random than the rest of it, but it's... Uh, <laughs> but that's the kind of thing I do. And, and I'm just going to kind of throw this out. But ironically, I was in Texarkana, Texas uh, for a little okay. bit. I had some friends that lived there within about a couple of years, around 1987. Okay. Well, how about that? What were you doing? What took you to Texarkana? I had some friends that lived there. And, and what I remember the most about it is that the city is – and you probably did a lot of research. I don't know if you've ever been there – but half the city is on the Texas side, and the other half is on the Arkansas side. Um, yeah, they, yeah, I, yeah, I did more than research. I lived there for a while. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, that the, the, the Texas side was dry and the Arkansas side was full of bars? Yes. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was precisely the situation. Well, no, I'm, I'm excited for the book to come out. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but uh, you said around December, correct? Yes. And um, and by all means, uh, when we uh, post this, uh, please send us some links. But if somebody listening want, besides me wants to get a copy of this book, what's the best way? Uh, the best way is going to be on Amazon at this point. Uh, you can also look at MontagPress.com, uh, but Amazon is your best bet. Okay, excellent. Um now, there's obviously, and I, and I get this is a dream sequence, but there's a lot of absurdism in, in, in this story, which I love. What are some of your ideas about absurdism? Um, well, okay, so I was interviewed about my last book, uh, The Librarian at the End of the World, by The Locust Review, which is a really excellent publication dedicated to the end of capitalist realism. Uh mm-hmm. And we talked about the increasing difficulty of satirizing a world that has utterly and completely jumped the shark. Um, 
the idea is that the world is far too ridiculous at this point to criticize uh, or to, as they say, reflect on in an irrealist manner or satirize. Uh, and so I wrote an absurdist novel about people cultivating cheese out of celebrity bacteria and damned if between acceptance and publication, if there was not an exhibit about cheese made from the armpit bacteria of musicians at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Yep. And it's like the whole world is Poe's law now. It's like martial law for assholes. Uh, but we, we can't really do anything to fight it. Not really. So we might as well just make fun of it uh, and point out its inconsistencies. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, if I tried to write what happened between 2016 and 2022 and went back in time and tried to sell it in 2010, I would be told, no way. This is yeah, there's, unrealistic. There's uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I mean, um, after uh, after they accepted this book for uh, publication, uh they suggested that I write a forward to it, and uh, and if we have time, when we're done uh, with the interview portion, I'll read the forward because I, I kind of touch on that. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and also thinking, well, you know, um, if there's something really about this time that is so ripe for absurdism. Oh, exceptionally so. Uh, I mean, most of my life has been spent in just confounding confusion about why everything is happening. All right. And uh, there's this old saying, they say that those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. And really, the only thing that I've benefited uh, from knowing history from or the only way that knowing history has benefited me is that I've gotten to watch as people who don't know history doom us to repeat it. You know, so. Uh, you know, it's like uh, the end of Candide, uh, let us tend to our garden. Uh, so, you know, these days I really like gardening. You know, I've really got a fantastic garden in my yard, and I like long work, well, long walks and bourbon because uh, that's kind of my coping, you know, uh, because the world is uh, fucking insane right now. Uh, it's also good to love people and to be loved because I think um, people – are more important than art. Uh, yeah. But for absurdism now, I think all you really need is plausibility. Uh, the world has gotten so stupid uh, that what else are you going to do? I mean, you know, you can't make this stuff up. There are museum exhibits of bacteria, you know, celebrity bacteria cheese. Um, it's just, you know, who knew that, uh, you know, like 10 years ago, if you told me, yeah, Donald Trump is going to be president and, and you know, we're going to start talking about mutually assured destruction again and, you know, like warming up our nukes, uh, I, I wouldn't have believed it because, you know, I mean, that's one of the things when you grew up in the 80s. Uh, I, I don't know how old you are, but if, if, if you were alive in the 80s, uh, one of the things that you were uh, always aware of was the threat of like nuclear exchange. And uh, exactly. So I, I'm an 80s kid and I grew up in California next to a Navy base. OK, OK. And we would drive by going into L.A. We drive by these big, giant satellites. You know, and I remember my scoutmaster pointing out, yeah, that's where they bounce all those signals off to the submarines. We'll be a secondary target come the nuclear war. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, you know, I, it reminds me of a, of a story uh, that uh, an old girlfriend of mine told me, um, a really talented musician named Shelley Miller and a good friend of mine still. Uh, she was living in Germany 
at the time, and it was right during the heart of the Cold War. And she went to the school, and they had a mascot called Grady the Gorilla uh, that, you know, was just ridiculous. But, you know, one day she's in class, and there's a grave announcement over the intercom. It's like, students, we have a very important, urgent message. And she automatically, oh, my God, the nukes have been launched. We're all going to die. You know, Cold War tensions. And it was like, uh, over the weekend, someone vandalized Grady the Gorilla. And she just started laughing and got in, you know, got in trouble. And they suspected her of doing it because she, you know, she was laughing at the vandalism of Grady the Gorilla. But it's just the kinds of things we were expected to give a shit about in the face of nuclear annihilation. Uh, it's pretty comical. Yeah. So, so what are maybe some other? Is there? I mean, you definitely you lived through it, but you seem sort of as an expert on the Cold War and the eighties. You know, what are some <laughs> things that maybe you got from that? Uh, well, first off, I'm not an expert on the Cold War, but I, I did have a front row seat for the eighties era propaganda. You know, yeah. before the Berlin Wall fell. Um, you know, it's where people like to categorize Hollywood as some kind of bastion of leftism, but really, you know, they're just capitalists. You yeah. know, like Red Dawn uh, was this far right wing fever dream of jingoism, nationalism, and NRA fueled propaganda and paranoia. You know, and then a couple of years later, Top Gun uh, basically traded script oversight to the U.S. Department of Defense uh, to get greater access to military hardware. Mm-hmm. And, and there, it was kind of like an agreement. Okay, yeah, but you've got to make us look good. Yeah. Uh, you know, funny, funny side note to that. Uh, funny side note to that. My sister's high school boyfriend was in the brig of the carrier that they filmed Top Gun on during filming. Uh, he was a bit of a nonconformist, and they didn't appreciate that he was always like wearing Vans to line up and stuff. Uh, but there's a journalist named Robert Stahl mm-hmm. uh, who. Uh, who used a FOIA request to gain access to like 30,000 pages of documents uh, where like the CIA and the Pentagon um, had script oversight for like 2,500 scripts throughout the, you know, 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And, you know, and, and, and I, I guess the thinking was that we had to make America look good and the other guys look bad. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that America isn't better than some places, but the use of art to create, you know, I guess you'd call it like a politically usable culture mm. is really grotesque and evidence that we aren't nearly as free as we think we are. And and holy Christ, there's like a new Top Gun movie. And yeah. Trump is in the news again and Russia is talking about the nukes and the Supreme Court is letting red states outlaw abortion and criminalize miscarriages. And Ron DeSantis is trying like hell to shove all the gay people back in the closet. And, and that, this, this is crazy talk. I mean, we're, we we won this fight back in, you know, back in the 90s. You know, we, yeah. we went through this in the 80s. We beat them in the 90s and now they're back. And like so much of what is happening now can be back to, you know, to back then. Uh, uh, you know, but the the Berlin Wall fell, and we all kind of got a good laugh that Putin installed himself in Russia, and here we are. <laughs> you know, like all we need right now is like a deck of garbage pill cards and some, you know, b- b- garbage pill kids and some satanic panic. Yeah, maybe some good Cali punk come out of it, right? I was I was I was just listening to California Uber Alice on the on the way up here. Yep. Yeah, uh, some some uh, maybe some uh, uh, 
Black Flag or uh, Social Distortion come up with some new songs for us. Right. Now, um, this is sort of our, our signature question, and I definitely, if, if you don't mind, I'll have you read uh, that preface uh, before we end, but this is kind of a question okay. we always ask people. If you could be in charge of any creative project, don't have to worry about money, uh, support, uh, copyrights, what is your dream project? Uh, you know, if I could do anything, I would just make weird installation art. You know, I, I want to make spaces, uh, atmospheric spaces, uh, like some kind of hybrid of Marina Abramovic and Bill Viola and Boss John Otter, uh, who are my top three favorite artists. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what I do is just uh, make weird installation art where people could go in and, 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 and experience things. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, cool. Well, cool. And uh, did you say that uh, you had that forward you could reach for us? Uh, you know what? Let me uh, let me find that. Let me scroll all the way back to the beginning of the document. Thank you. And uh, you're listening to KZOM only in the public radio. Any minute now. Sorry, scrolling oh, on. No, no, no. Scrolling on a Mac is not as fast. That's okay. You're listening to KZOM only in the public radio. Okay. Any minute now. You're listening to KZOM. Only good jokes while we wait. So, define good. I mean, I think good is a nonsense word. I'll leave that up to your interpretation. Yes. I'm having sort of a brain freeze on jokes here, I'm afraid. That's all right. I got to the forward. You're saved. So your computer says, oh, no, he's going to talk again. Find it before David talks again. All right. So, okay, here we go. Uh, So the foreword of the novel. We were talking about hiding under our desks when the nukes came. That was the straight-faced suggestion made by people in positions of authority. After the initial blast, we were to – hold on, the dogs were – hold on. Let me let the dog – Let's go, Bob. You're listening to KZOM, only in the public radio. You're listening to KZOM, only in the public radio. Okay, sorry about that. Fortunately, yes, that do- the dogs probably could hear by goats in the background. <laughs> okay, so I'll start the forward over again. Okay. We were talking about hiding under our desks when the nukes came. That was the straight-faced suggestion made by people in positions of authority. After the initial blast, we were to wash our hair with strong soap and seek a fallout shelter. There we could live the remainder of our days in sterile comfort, eating canned foods and wondering what the outside world was like. If we survived long enough, we would all die of starvation, exposure, or cancer at a more leisurely pace. It was a mundane paradise compared to being incinerated so quickly that only our shadows were left burned on the sidewalk beneath us, or beneath where we once stood, you know, a millisecond to go before we were incinerated. I swear, this is a book about love, and the 80s were supposed to be incidental. But then Donald Trump was in the news again for no good reason thinking people could imagine. Papa resumed preaching. Florida tried to shove all their gay people back in the closet. The Supreme Court found a matching set of Wham shirts and, at Goodwill, and it was like 80s reruns were playing in all dimensions. At this point, all we would need to have a complete set of garbage bell kids is some good satanic panic. 
But I digress. Round about 1987, we were all in history class. Zero, Steve Ham Snazzy, so-called because he liked the surf Nazis must die movie, not because he thought there was a master race that he was a part of somehow in spite of his obvious shortcomings. And I, talking about instantaneous death, when the first seedlings of this novel were planted, what if I got lucky and found someone desperate enough to go to prom with me? But then we all died before the big night. I laughed out loud and had to explain myself to the class, which was awkward because no one else got the joke. Flaming death never fell from the sky, which was a bit of a shame because prom was shit too. But if you've been keeping up with current events, you might be worried for the first time in a long time that we're all going to die. That's the feeling of the 80s hitting the fan and blowing back on us. Armageddon of one kind or another was always looking around the corner. I spent 30 years not thinking about mutually assured destruction, and it would just figure that the second this book was about to come out, Russia would start prattling on and on about how awesome its nukes are. I suppose if it comes to blows, it will be less painful than global warming, so everyone lighten up already. Besides, this is a book about the kind of romance that transcends prom and global annihilation. Love and all its many manifestations reign supreme. Stick with it. You'll see. And if you lived through the 80s, you might get a little wistful. But that's just nostalgia fucking with you. You can't go back, nor should you want to. The 80s were shit, so don't try. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. One of my... my, uh mother's favorite quotes is you know nostalgia is like sex every generation thinks that they invented it yeah right i'm not sure i i know she got it from someone but but um yeah so i i have really really enjoyed talking to you and well, thank you so much for having me i did too and so uh what again will be the name of your new book the name of the book is The Two-Headed Lady at the End of the World, subtitled A Romance Hotter Than a Thousand Suns. And your first your book before that is The Librarian at the End of the World. Are they related or do you, should we get – Same universe. Uh, I'm going to write a third book called The Walrus at the End of the World, which will end the trilogy. Okay, excellent. So, I mean, of course, we want everyone to buy both of your books, but would you suggest they get the first one first before they read the second one? Uh, they are not sequential. You can read them in whatever order. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, we will definitely put some links out there. And you think that it will be uh, December-ish, just right, right in time? I think, I, I think it's going to be December 12th. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, and hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me, David. It was a real pleasure. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit MonsterKidRadio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, 
and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio. Talking about oozes Ooh, and plants yeah. and undead. Ooh, that's uh, one of those everyone knows is one of my favorites to use. That being undead, which we'll save the best for last. Um, oozes. What, what, what do we know about oozes, Dave? Well, they ooze. Mm. Okay, cool. So I heard it very, I mean, the classic ooze mm-hmm. is going to be. The green slime. The green slime, yeah. So here's an interesting thing. Someone brought it up, and I think they're right, but I haven't double-checked. Green slime does not appear in the Monster Manual. It appears in the Dungeon Master's Manual. Oh, yeah. It's it's a natural hazard, though. Like, uh, because it's considered more of a trap than yeah, a creature. Yeah, yeah. At least for 5e. No, we're, not, yeah. we're talking 5e. Um, so... That's kind of the big thing. I think that most people, and I think most players, at least old school players, yeah. think of them as low-level. Yeah, players, yeah. Low <laughs> um, but that most as roadblocks or traps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, question, would like um, a fungus that like emits sound or something, is that... An ooze, or is that a plant? I and, and they exist. They exist. I know at least in, in first AD. I think they're classified. And again, this this is mainly just to make it easier on the rules and the yeah, DM. But I think yeah. they're classified as a plant. Okay. All right. Yeah. Now I was thinking about it. It's like, well, it was a stationary thing that. Yeah. Anyway, so oozes aren't always stationary. You've got the dreaded gelatinous cube of five by five by five uh, slime that's primarily used uh, to clean up dungeons, honestly, and as a trap for people in low-light situations who aren't paying attention. I I heard of a... uh, Someone had written a scenario, but basically it was the wizard wanted a new outhouse, so they had to go out and capture a, a gelatinous cube. He'd dig a hole and put it down so that uh, basically he'd have something to poop on. He saw all his poop when he... <laughs> but, uh, so, but I think, like I said, they seem as low level. Yeah. So if you want to really mess up your, your players, mm-hmm. you know, it could look like a news and then be a shoggoth. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, something I was going to say, which, you know, uh, is, is kind of uh, used in the uh, Shadow over Innsmouth 
is like a Shoggoth in water, which I'm mm-hmm. like, that sounds terrifying. Uh, Shoggoths can swim. But uh, using a gelatinous cube in water or using oozes in water, instead of water weirds, like you have like a, uh, a moat with several gelatinous cubes in it, or you have a sunken dungeon that has several gelatinous cubes in it, or slimes of various sorts. Uh, I, when it comes to oozes, I generally don't mess around with anything other than black puddings and uh, gelatinous cubes, because those, those, those ones have always been kind of like the classics for me. Um, no, I, and, and I, they, they've been, you know, since every printing that I've ever seen in the game. Yeah. But if you want to make it, you know, you want to up the CR? Sure. Make them like a hive mind. Oh, that's cool. Make them smart, you know, and, and they can communicate if maybe not either telepathy mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. telepathically, so you know you wipe out this one little tiny one. Well, now you got this huge one coming. Yeah. Or when they combine, they create intelligence. Oh yeah, 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 like cranial rats or something. But yeah, yeah. Or or if they combine, they create a massive giant cube. Like I think the bad guy in Yoshi's Island level one, just a bunch of slimes that then form into a giant king slime. Okay. I think so. It, it, it's been I, a while. I missed that game. <laughs> I know. Anyway, uh, what other oozes do we have? What other slimes uh, do you think are notable? And what does a black pudding do? Well, you can't eat the black pudding until you eat your black meat. Okay, that's true. That's true. How can you have your black meat? Yeah. He is. So, um, I guess, I mean, the, the, they're mainly used as traps, as this thing coming down the hallway, mm-hmm. or the pit, or a, um, uh, you know, a hole opens up in the roof and it falls in on you. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're slow moving, and, and the sort of, they sort of have, well, they're, they're seen as, you know, eating like uh, a giant amoeba or acidic, like, you know, the xenomorph. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think you can maybe sort of, I don't know if anyone's ever done this, but an ooze golem. Ooze. <laughs> yeah. um, probably one of the uh, coolest ways I've ever seen an ooze delivered is, I can't remember the name of the module, it was one of these, like, 25 years of Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, what I do remember about the module, it was mostly, like, Yanti um, uh, antagonists. And uh, at, at one point, when you come into the dungeon early on, there's some orcs with rings of invisibility on. Mm-hmm. And they're holding glass staffs that one end is a big glass bubble uh, that contains a uh, black pudding. And they'll attack you with the glass staff first, and then attack you with their claws and bite and all that kind of fun stuff. And I think if it had been written now, yeah, it, it would have been kobolds. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. Kobolds are a lot smarter than they were in 2nd edition. <laughs> and and they're, also, they're also sort of the, the trap masters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I remember these were, like, trolls with, like, armor on, and it's like, okay, so someone put armor on trolls and gave them 
tools to okay and that's cool um but yeah no no it's like i i then took something like that and then turned it into something a bit like a uh chandelier rig to fall and like some of parts of the chandelier contained uh slimes or puddings or whatever but yeah and and if you want to borrow something from another game yeah uh the toxic waste spirits from Shadowrun. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we, we see oozes sort of as these natural occurring, if not horrific, creatures. Mm-hmm. But, you know, make them a result of, you know, the the waste from the mill or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or even, like, uh, going back to, like, first and second edition, you could have them come from some sort of blasted heath uh, not you, uh, bla- some sort of blasted heath where it's like magic uh, went wild here, or there was a wizard duel, or uh, some sort of unholy sight or something like that, and that's where this type of pudding, or you know, maybe make a hell pudding uh, that has like you know all the uh, resistances that a fiend would have, but it's a pudding, um, or or a gelatinous cube, a hell cube, a demon cube. Um, yeah, or, or make it, uh, spherical and highly radioactive and then call it the demon sphere. (laughs) And that joke's out there for all my demon sphere enthusiasts and nuclear accident enthusiasts. Uh, yeah, so oozes, they're crazy, but plants are pretty crazy too. Uh, plants that are enemies, that's, that's, uh... You know, it doesn't have to be a sentient plant person. It can be uh, fungal spores that shoot stuff. It could be uh, plants that are carnivorous plants, like uh, we've talked about in the past. It could be vines that can attach. It can be um, nettle shooters. I mean, uh, there's 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 a, there's a wide variety of plants out there, and there's a lot of plants that uh, mimic things that. Uh, we think of is like constructed things like uh, lan- uh, lanterns, uh, plants made out of <laughs> lanterns made out of plants because of some sort of chemical reaction. Dave, what 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 else do we got? Well, I mean, of course we've we've got uh, the trends. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and I think it's it's what it's ant in it's ant in Lord of the Rings and Trent. In D and D because yeah. of the lawsuit. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so obviously we've got plant people, mm-hmm. but you've got other things. I mean, um, you know, an Audrey two type Venus flytrap. Sure. Yeah. Um, there's a really good horror story that has absolutely nothing to do with biology and reality. Oh, okay. By uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, and where it's in Arizona and this guy basically uh, gets because Arthur Conan Doyle apparently thought there were giant Venus flytraps in the desert of Arizona yeah Uh, and and so at the end they come across this body that you know been uh, drained of all of its fluids stuck in a you know the mouth of a a flying uh, of a giant uh, Venus flytrap yeah Uh, the other thing is Plants are 
or they, I mean, so they can either be food or they can be poison. Yeah. And uh, and when we say poison, it's kind of generic in D and D, but it could be like an allergy that humans have to it. Sure. Or elves have to it. Yeah. No. And not only can you have poisonous plants, you can have venomous plants. It, exactly. But you know, plants could also you, you have a speak with plant spell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they could also be the helper. Sure, yeah, yeah, if they're intelligent enough. <laughs> Is a, a shrambling mound a plant? I was thinking that it was a monster, but I'm gonna check that for you. Okay, yeah, no, no, I, it's, it's, I, I feel like there's all kinds of humanoids based off of whatever kind of plant life there is. There's, there's mushroom people, seaweed people, uh, moss people, thorn people, tree people of all different shapes and sizes. Like, you have the treants, but you also have, like, I don't know, things that look like little uh, little branch, like baby Groot kind of stuff, long before baby Groot, but not before Groot, cause, I don't know. Uh, Groot predates D&D. But, yeah, yeah, no, you've got all kinds of, uh, I don't know, I want to say, like, things that look like other animals but are actually plants. Uh, and you can easily uh, add the uh, plants. So sh- shambling mods are, are monsters, at least according to Black Citadel, are mm-hmm. plants. Okay, all right. Yeah, I, I thought they had the plant type. Uh, yeah. And the thing about them is if you hit them with lightning, they get bigger. So, like Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that's King Kong. King Kong gets yeah, bigger with lightning? He gets stronger. Oh, okay. All right, all right. That doesn't make sense. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but, yeah, plants. There's a lot of plants. You can use plants uh, natural uh, as, as, like, a natural defense, a naturally occurring offense. <laughs> Or you can um, have an elaborate system of watering plants and making sure that they have light in your dungeon so that you can have magical plants or just uh, deadly plants in your underground jungle where you have some sort of very powerful ion stone that generates ultraviolet light to feed the plants. (laughs) So, so spoiler for what is... Considered to be the the worst uh, M Night uh, Shyamalan movie. Oh, the happening. Yeah. Yeah. So so it turns out it's plants making everybody kill themselves. Yeah. But you could have some sort of war with that. Yeah. A war with plants. The other, especially if you've got like, if the plants are going to be intelligent, maybe they have their own plant gods. True. Very true. And uh, I believe if, like, you go into uh, D&D, like, there used to be, like, kind of, like, planty gods. But I also know for a fact if you want to steal some planty gods, Call of Cthulhu uh, has some uh, fungus gods for sure. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, an aspect of Shulk Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and uh, the thing is that plants... And we know it's not completely true, but but logic and nature and experience says that it's not supposed to move. Yeah. So if it does move, it's not supposed to talk. Mm-hmm. But even if it does talk, 
or, or, or even if it does seem good, there's something unnatural about it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, when I was talking about, like, magical plants, I mean, like, that's that's kind of what I'm talking about, like, plants that are able to do things that just a standard plant can't, like fire a longbow at you, <laughs> or, or or sing a song that makes you fall asleep uh, while while uh, dispersing its uh, uh, pollen, which which has a sleep effect, a natural sleep effect uh, that only affects so, humanoids or something, you know. So, so so we see two examples of that. Yeah. In the Wizard of Oz. Oh yeah. The the poppies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and the apple trees. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, just uh, Frank Albaum. You can you can rip off from that easily. Uh, I mean, that's that's okay. Wizard of Oz is so easy to steal from and mold things into Dungeons and Dragons that maybe your players won't realize. You know, uh, started out in a gnome village and <laughs> ended with hags. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, plants. Plants, you can do so much with plants. Plants, it's it's like you can do, uh, like, I don't know, I feel like you could also, if, if you had, like, the right kind of, like, artificer types or, 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 or plat, uh, plant-based uh, druids or something, you could almost, like, use plants in ways kind of like uh, biomechanics or, like, uh, cybernetics or something like that how, how you would use them in a cyberpunk thing you could uh have plants that help you run faster and plants that help you jump higher and plants that help you see further uh, i don't know maybe maybe they uh, emit some sort of dew that gets into your eyes that makes it so that uh you can you can see twice as far but yeah plants are cool <laughs> yes they are but plants are not as cool as my favorite uh type my, 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 my favorite subclass, my, my favorite... Uh, we saved the best for last? Yes, yes we did. And that is Undead. And uh, Dave, although it is my favorite, can you do me the honors of, of explaining what Undead are? And then we can start talking about all the cool Undead. Yeah, and, and then also maybe my problem with the Undead. Sure, go for it. So, the Undead are those that should be dead. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we talk about things like this idea of a sentient plant is just unnatural to us. Well, our minds since caveman days have been conditioned that the dead lie there. Yeah. And that, so there's this natural thought that if it, that changes, mm-hmm. it can't be good. Yeah. That they come back, if they come back, if they come back, we're broken or wrong or evil. Yeah. So here's... And so, if they are innately evil, then they are opposed by those that are innately good, yeah. i.e. the divine gods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and that's my problem with D&D, is you make this really, really awesome undead villain, yeah, and the friggin' third-level cleric just zaps it into dust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's true. That's true. Uh... <laughs> and, and so you know, and there are ways to make them more powerful. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, my undead have like 
are given relics that maybe it costs more to make the so they can't make them all go away. Yeah. And you know, and then so you plan it. You've got all these extra undead, and the cleric can't show up for that day, and now your party swarmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I've I've always felt uh, <laughs> uh, common sense is the best uh, tool for dealing with the undead. Um, you know, if if there's certain types that will take levels away, take uh, constitution or whatever. Uh, you know, that's that's when you put your priest up front, and when it's just like big dumb skeletons, it's like, hey, everybody, let's let's just do this. And if you know, if if you can't tell that they're undead, I mean, I, I'm always on the lookout for undead as as a player character, uh, you know, uh, or or as a dungeon master, I'm always looking to hide the undead or put the undead in the least expected places. Uh, maybe have a vizier for a king or emperor who is uh, not a lich, but like maybe a vampire. Or uh, a kingdom still being ruled by uh, an intelligent mummy uh, sorcerer or something like that. Um, it's, it's always cool to have like undead be like the secret power behind the throne, in my opinion. I don't do it all the time because then people would just be like, okay, who, where's 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 the lich? Uh, I say in a campaign setting that I've come up with, I'll use like maybe a lich once and then kind of like uh, either either it's kind of like trickle down evil from a lich that, you know, gets killed towards the end of the game that everything's been like all the undead stuff's been kind of coming out of this place. And, you know, it's like, once we get rid of this guy, we don't have to worry about anything. Um, also, if you're dealing with things like illithids, things that use psionic abilities, they can't see the undead. And it's, it's kind of a blind spot for them. Or, uh, here's another thing, if you have someone who is uh, using... Zombies, not zombies, uh, someone who's using plants to attack stuff, why not use the undead to clear that out? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I think raising undead um, in some ways, in most ways, is considered like an evil act or, you know, looked down by most uh, churches. But, it, 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 as opposed to the, the divine. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's taking the... the the duty and the choices of, of the holy and giving it to him. That's why, that's why Frankenstein is so evil. Sure. Even though he's not evil, yeah. but that's why people see Frankenstein as evil. Definitely, because he's, he's the unnatural, he's the other. Um, yeah. Or I was thinking Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 he is becoming unto God and does not have the power of a God. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, no. Um, and, yeah, no, if you have powerful uh, player characters or powerful NPCs who uh, like to do the Frankenstein thing, um, by that I mean raise the undead, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like you, you can have people treat them in various ways when they come into a city, when they approach other people or whatever. I mean, there's, there's something about them that seems off, possibly, and... Um, we're not talking about NPCs who make undead. We're talking about undead. 
And there's so many cool undeads. We've got Wraiths, which, what, what, Wraiths, uh, what's their big special power, Dave? I can't remember off the top so of my head. So I believe they are grain, that they, they are basically powerful sort of sp- spiritual as opposed to physical. So yeah. I believe they only need, or can only be hit by magic weapons. Okay, all right. Uh, and they're, um, they're, they're based on sort of a Scottish, very, very, Vaguely on Scottish mythology. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I believe their primary attack is draining. I'm going to double check that for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it is, uh, it looks like it's uh, magic or silver weapon. Okay, all right. And so. That, if you don't, I mean, so you got a plus one weapon, you're, you're pretty much okay. But if you don't have any magic weapons, or you're, you're defenseless. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's, that's, that's another thing. It's like if you run across to a, a wraith, you know, know what your undead does. And if you have a cleric, make sure that they've taken enough stuff in religion that they can easily identify stuff, like the undead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I... and, and, and so I, it does kind of come from a lot of the uh, beliefs that you know undead take so take the life force. Yeah. Or in vampires, they take the blood from you know the humans, mm-hmm. the elves, so that they can exist in yeah. this dimension. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 scary. Um, I uh, I feel like uh so so I you, know, you mentioned le- leeches mm-hmm. so so leeches are a modern concept yeah they were actually created for fantasy writing okay. and and sort of co- codified as I mean the term may have existed but they weren't really a major creature yeah uh, until the fantasy writings of the sixties and the seventies okay and in a lot of ways with Vampires, they're the top of the pyramid. Okay, yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. Um, although, I, I feel like there's, like, some things that if you have a lich that is of this creature versus that creature, like a lich human is not as powerful as a Draco lich. But it probably takes all kinds of terrible things to... <laughs> make a dragon into a Draco Lich, so... <laughs> a terrible Necronomic dragon. Yeah. So, that turns itself in. So, yeah, they're going to start out pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's something that came up definitely in 3rd edition, mm-hmm. was that the idea that the undead could be a template. Yeah, yeah. And that you could put it on exist, so you could have a giant skeleton. Yeah. Or, or a zombie boar. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I really like the template system for various undead uh, types. Um, like, you can just have... I mean, it's it's like if it has bones, or even if I think it, if it has an exoskeleton, <laughs> turning something uh, that has, like, a skeletal structure... Uh, into the undead it's like oh man if you had like a giant crab uh, carapace just laying there maybe cast uh, 
you know, raise undead and uh, send it against people, and they won't know that it's, uh, you know, that they have to hit it with this stuff or that stuff or, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, there's no reason you can't put your undead in armor. There's no reason you can't put alchemical traps within your uh, skeletons or your zombies. There's no reason you can't treat the bodies themselves with alchemical things so that, like, you know, when hit, uh, your, your skeletons explode and release a gas or release metal shards everywhere or anything like that. And zombies can be used to, like, uh, spread bio stuff. And in, in, in my opinion, you could use zombies to spread plagues, um, uh, you know, infections, like, you know, the infectious type of zombie bites. Um, you know, you, you can do that. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would hate to see the uh, person who uh, rounds up enough wraiths to, uh, you know, mess up uh, a local ecology, but, I mean... I don't even know if you can round up wraiths or if wraiths are kind of stuck to a spot. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, I, I kind of did the opposite yeah. once where I, I had the, the, the big bad basically put like masks, because all his zombies he put like masks on it or like bags on their head. Mm -hmm. And so he sends out a bunch of, you know, mooks with bags on their head and so, you know, go around moaning so that they think that you're undead. So, uh, the, the cleric wastes a, uh, 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 you know, a, a rebuke or... Whatever. Oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, so, ah, but it didn't work. And then they say, oh, but, the guy goes, ouch! You know, oh, okay, they're not undead. They're just pretending to be undead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. Uh, uh, and, and we could uh, combine uh, earlier things with the skeletons. Uh, like, what if you put a big glass thing full of black pudding in the skeleton's rib cage so that when it gets attacked the black pudding then sprays out or jumps out or does its thing um or why not uh have some skeletons with some uh you know spore uh some sort of like uh, exploding spore growing on them or in them or you know cultivate slimes and skeletons to uh be a coexisting thing um, you know, uh, toxic plants to be, and, and a skeleton or a zombie to be a coexisting thing, or a mummy. Uh, I don't know, mummies are a little bit tricky, but like, you know, because they have to be all dried out and such stuff. But yeah, no, no, I feel like you can do a lot just mixing these things in ways it's like, not, not a hybrid creature, but a symbiotic creature. Like, yeah. uh... I don't know. You you have some sort of carnivorous plant uh, that lives on a skeleton, and it gets to eat, and the skeleton uh, fulfills its purpose, which is, uh, you know, it's being commanded to attack living things. So, you know, hey. <laughs> All right. Um, anything else you wanted to talk about with uh, undead? We pretty is... much covered the undead and the oozes and the plants. But, Dave, before we leave, do you have a favorite type of undead? Um, I, you know, I, I think this is from being a child and watching, you know, Jason and the Argonauts. Sure. But living skeletons are, are pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. Even if they are low-level game-wise. But, you know, there's stuff you can do to make them 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I love liches, but liches I don't think of as just, like, simple undead. But when it comes to, like, simple undead, I want to say wraiths are where it's at. You can put them in places, and if people are prepared, people are prepared. If they're not prepared, it's trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, hey, yeah, that's been uh, undead oozes in plants. Not in that order, of course. You just heard that. So, yeah. We like to mix things up a little bit. We do. We do. We do. And that's going to be the end of uh, Monster Types. We're going to be talking about more D&D next week. Uh, and, yeah, we're going to be talking about more aspects of Narlethotep. And we're probably going to have a guest on. And more importantly, we're going to be here. You're going to be here. We're going to have a good time. And check out The Daily Show. Uh, not not the show on Comedy Central, but our daily show. And uh, hear what cool pulp stories we've got going on this week and next week and for the rest of October. And, of course, have a good, safe, spooky Halloween. Are you dressing the goats up this year, Dave? So we've got a, uh, we've got a few goat costumes, but yeah. they, they don't last very long. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, yeah, no, I'm not sure what's going on. Uh, here, we're happy that the rain is back, and also, uh, yeah, we're going to be doing cemetery tours again, so if you come to Oleander, uh, go to the mayor's residence, which isn't the mayor's residence anymore, the old mayoral, no, it's never been the mayor's residence, it's the Oleander house, yeah, doing, yeah, yeah. um, the Oleander house, and behind the Oleander house is... Um, the cemetery, and I'm generally out there raking leaves or doing yard work or something like that um, just around my house. But, yeah, everything else is... Uh, the, the city's doing it? Anyway, uh, you didn't come here to talk about that. So, next week, super excited about that. And also, super excited about... I don't know, Halloween. And we'll see you next time, everyone. Have a good one. As always, this episode has been edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer and uh, middle segment edited by David Heath. Uh, music is always by D.B. Spitzer. And you can check us out at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos on Facebook. Go to at PGTTCM for the Twitter and for the Instagrams. Thank you so much, and we'll hear you, hear from you next time. See you soon. All right. See you then, everyone. That was a good episode. Yeah.